Now, the title of the sermon series is The Jesus I Should Know. Now, I was first introduced to the message of the gospel in 1986. I was invited to go to church outside of an Ozzy Osbourne concert in 1986. The tour was the ultimate sin, and there were some people from a local church that got burdened that the ultimate sin tour had come to our city of Saginaw. And so their idea was to bring the ultimate sin remedy of Jesus Christ to those concert, concert goers. Now, probably not the best place to witness to people coming out of a heavy metal rock concert. Ozzy was the, the mainline uh, musician. Metallica opened with Master of the Puppets. And I went there to see some show. And little did I know that I would get invited to church and ultimately saved through that event. My life changed. I realized that my sins were forgiven, that uh, God the Father loved me so much, he sent God the Son uh, to live a perfect life uh, for 33 years to ultimately culminate his life by dying on Calvary's cross and raising three days later from the grave. I, I realized what Jesus had done for me. I received his payment as my own, and he was changing me. But for some reason, I still didn't think I measured up. And often, what we believe about God affects everything about us. And because I did not have a good understanding or a complete understanding of Jesus and God and who they were to me, it affected everything in my life. So I lived this performance-based Christianity life where I always felt like I had to do more. I had to witness more. I had to give more. I had to read more. I had to pray more because if I didn't, I wouldn't measure up and God wouldn't be pleased and God wouldn't be happy. And, and maybe I would uh, uh, rattle him somehow. Maybe he would turn his back on me like people had in life. And it wasn't till, until I was an adult and I was on a little getaway for the express purpose of refocusing and planning and reading and praying, I read a book called What's So Amazing About Grace and the Jesus I Never Knew that I realized there was nothing I could do that could cause God to love me anymore. And there's nothing I could do that could cause God to love me any less. God loved me because God is love. It's his character. So I want to ask you a question this morning. And this is not a rhetorical question. If you have an answer, just raise your hand. I'll call on you and I'll get an answer. So finish this sentence. I believe Jesus is most filled with joy when anyone. When you obey. When you obey. Anyone. When you spend time with them, anyone else? When you, when you help one another, love one another. Now, the question this morning is what brings Jesus joy? 
John the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this. He said in 3 John uh, chapter 1, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. Now, we understand that God allowed the personality and the authorship of these human writers to come through in the, uh, the uh, giving of his holy writ, his holy word. And John said that he had no greater joy personally, and it's uh, in our holy Bible today, John's words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. Paul the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the same thing. He says to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, what is our hope or our joy or our crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church at Thessalonica, you, church, are my glory and joy. I've seen your growth. I've seen how you've received the gospel. I've seen how you've trumpeted the word of God all throughout Macedonia and all of Achaia. And you are my glory and joy. But what most produces joy for Jesus? Now, before I knew God was calling me into ministry, I was going to be a doctor. In fact, all of my grades, I took the uh, PSAT, and I scored in the half percentile of everybody in, in the nation. I took the ACT, I took the uh, SAT, and the same thing for all of those. I was planning on getting a scholarship to the University of Michigan. Go blue, amen. And going to undergrad, and then going to med school, and then going to a, a specialty school after that, I would have probably been a surgeon specializing in heart or brain surgery, right? Go big or go home. In fact, heart and brain surgery, I'd have been able to help a lot of you. <laughs> but let's just say that were to happen, and I established an NGO that sought to help people that by no means could care for themselves. And I heard about an isolated tribe near a tributary of the Amazon that had acquired some contagious disease and needed our help. So we take our team of doctors and nurses and we fly in our tents and our generators and our equipment and our surgical tools and our medications and we rightly diagnose what is going on and communicate to these tribesmen that we can help them and they refuse our help. They're superstitious. They want to try uh, some tribal remedies. They want to heal, but they want to do so in their own way and on their own terms. But a tribal elder has a child who contracts this contagious disease, and desperately and bravely, he chooses to see us and our team to be healed. Now, what do I feel as a doctor who has, through great expense of my own, provided a way to help these people in a desperate situation? I don't feel contempt. I don't feel disgust. I don't feel superiority. But you know what? I feel joy. Because that's the whole reason we went. Now, how much more would I feel this way if the sick person was a part of my own family? Now, we need to think about this as we think of Jesus. He doesn't get frustrated with us 
when we come to him needing assurance of his mercy as we struggle with sin. He doesn't turn his back on us when we're sick and outraged and distressed. In fact, the whole reason the Bible says he came is to seek and to save that which is lost. He took all of our sins upon himself. The Bible says he hath made him, speaking of Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He paid for the sins of murderers, adulterers, rapists, thieves, lawbreakers, uh, lusters, angry people, doubters, liars, fornicators, worriers, discouraged people. He took all of those sins and uh, the sins of every human being who has ever lived and ever will live and he took those sins upon himself to make us righteous, to make those who receive him righteous. And then as we struggle, we can continually come to him in mercy. He helps us to get victory over our struggles and to continually live righteously. The more we draw from his mercy, the more we understand his mercy. He endured the horrors of every sin and provides a limitless supply of mercy and grace, especially to his family. Jesus doesn't only want us to draw upon his mercy and grace as people who struggle to substantiate his redemptive work, but he wants us to draw upon his mercy and grace because it's who he is. It's his character to demonstrate mercy and grace. In fact, in his incarnation, the Bible says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, we like to be on the truth side. We like to tell everybody how they're doing it wrong. We like to point out everybody's faults. We like to stand high and mighty and cast dispersion on others that don't measure up to our superiority. But Jesus was full of grace and truth. And notice what the Bible goes on to say. It says, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now think about it. Who do we see Jesus spending the most earthly ministry? Tax collectors, people despised by the rest of the nation, fishermen, bricklayers, common people, sinners. He's not holed up in the temple with Sadducees and Pharisees. The Bible says they came making the accusation of him that he came eating and drinking, a gluttonous man, a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. And I believe the Bible teaches us that, that Jesus gets more joy than we do when we come to him for help and mercy, and his life resembled this. Now, we're not an annoyance when we come to Jesus for help and mercy with our sinfulness. And we're not a pain with, with the idea that we frustrate him and diminish him and exhaust him by our continual weakness. That's not the case at all. We should understand that our need for his help and mercy bring him the most joy. When we're hesitant to come to him, faltering and failing, wondering how he could not despise and repute us, we miss out in experiencing his everlasting mercy and grace. 
and he misses out in showing us those things anew because that's what he lived and he died for. You say, Pastor, I'm just not sure I buy it. What does the Bible say about this? I'm glad you asked. As we look at our text this morning in Hebrews chapter 12, we understand a couple of things. Now, first of all, Hebrews 12 is a familiar passage of Scripture. Most people believe that God used Paul to author the book of Hebrews, and the main point of the book of Hebrews is to instruct the Hebrew people concerning Christ's all-sufficient work and offering himself for our sins as our eternal high priest and how those truths should affect our lives. Now, our passage begins, verse 1, with this. It says, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, the author of the book of Hebrews brings us into the Roman arena. Now, these arenas were constructed in such a way that when you were on the arena floor, the stands would appear to raise into the clouds. Now, the cloud of witnesses in the stands here are those that have made it through the test of faith described or mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, the, the Abrahams and the Isaacs and the Sarahs and the Jacobs and the Noahs and the Enochs, all of those people that are mentioned in chapter 11. In other words, these examples have run the race and these examples are testimonies to every one of us that we can run our race and we can run our race well. And then notice how the Bible tells us to run our race, how to live our lives. It says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, participants in these races in the, Bibles, uh, in the Bible times would run almost naked. No, I'm not suggesting that. But in the Bible times, that's what they would do. They would run as unencumbered as possible. And the Bible here is telling believers that we need to run our races, our races unencumbered, laying aside every weight, anything that weighs us down, anything that keeps us from going forward as we focus on Jesus. And we are to lay aside the besetting sins. For some of us, it's anger. For some of us, it's lust. For some of us, it's discouragement. Whatever your besetting sin is, we're to lay aside those things as we focus on Jesus running our race. Now, your race is your race. It may be filled with obstacles. It may be uphill. It may be on a windy road. It may be full of potholes, but that is your race. And then notice verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus is the originator of our faith, and he is the goal as we live, as we walk, as we run our Christian race by faith. We run, and as we do, we're focused on him. While running, there's bumps in the road. While running, we, we cramp up with problems and struggles. While running, we keep focused on him all the while we're enduring. And then notice what this text says about Jesus. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice the Bible says, 
who for the joy that was set before him, what joy? What joy? What was Jesus looking forward to on the other side of the cross while enduring the shame of the cross? Joy. Joy in seeing people redeemed. Joy in seeing people reconciled back to God. Joy in seeing people fall completely on the mercy of God for salvation and in their sanctification. Joy. Now notice the rest of the text. And is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, the whole point of the book of Hebrews was to explain that Jesus, as our great high priest, the high priest of all high priests, that ended man-made sacrifices and offerings because he was the once-for-all offering given for everyone. Uh, That's why verse 2 pictures Jesus on God's strong right hand, and he seated, indicating that all that was necessary for sins to be resolved or propitiated was taking place or taken care of in the God-man who lived a life free from sin, gave his life for us on the cross, and as a result, all redemptive work is complete. We simply need to appropriate it, which brings me to a question this morning. Are you saved this morning? Have you appropriated what Jesus Christ has done for you? Are you trying to save yourself somehow? The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that cometh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They're all together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. It's impossible for any of us to save ourselves. That's the whole reason Jesus came. And the law had good things in it because it foreshadowed what Jesus would do for us and it presented our need for something more because we could never live up to the law. The law ultimately makes men guilty. In fact, it says in Hebrews chapter 10, these words. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. It says, for then they would not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sins or no more need to offer if they offered once and those sacrifices really resolved the sins. But verse 3, it says, in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats can take away sins. Then notice how the author of Hebrews presents Christ and what he did in fulfilling the law. It says, Then said he, Jesus, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, fulfills the first, the law, that he may establish the second. What's the second? Himself and what he's done for us on the cross. And then notice what it says, by the which will we are sanctified, set apart, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Look at those words. Once for all. One sacrifice for all time for all men. People in the Old Testament, they looked forward to what Jesus was going to do someday. Today, in the present, we look back to what Jesus Christ has already done for us. He's the once for all sacrifice for all mankind. 
And notice what it goes on to say. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. It is finished. Now the priest in the Bible between God and man. He was responsible to keep people accountable and connected to God. Jesus did this as our great high priest, offering himself once for mankind, past, present, and future, making it possible for man to have forgiveness, cleansing, righteousness, and wholeness. Now, it was the joyous anticipation of seeing God's plan fulfilled from eternity past and man being made spotlessly clean that sent Jesus to his arrest, his mockery of a trial, the cruelty of the passion, the hanging on the cross, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And when we receive Christ's atoning work in salvation and rest on his forgiveness and sanctification, coming to him for mercy, despite our shortcomings, despite our sinfulness, we are partaking of Christ's deepest longing and joy, and that is to continually extend his mercy. That's why it says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You see, his greatest joy is knowing that he would redeem us, he would free us, he would unshackle us, and let us drink from his everlasting mercy and grace. That's why the Bible says in the parable of the lost sheep, it says the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner that cometh to repentance. That's why it says after the parable of the lost coin in Luke chapter 15 and verse 10, likewise I say there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. The angels rejoice over those that receive the love of God and his mercy of the Son because that's what brings Jesus joy. And then notice something else. That's why the Bible says, that's why Jesus said, these things have I spoken unto you that your joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Now we partake of Christ's joy when we express love to those who desperately need love even when they don't deserve it. Now, he doesn't just want us forgiven. He wants us. He wants us. He wants us as a healthy part of his family, not looking over our shoulders, not wondering if we're going to be cast out. He wants us to always feel and sense his continual love and mercy, not to feel like some sin debt is hanging over our head, and if we cross a line, we're going to be now responsible for it. No. That's not how he wants us to feel. Listen to the Gospel of John. Jesus, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. Now, it may be hard for us to comprehend this because in every other relationship we have, we only get when we're on our best behavior. My, my daughters have cats. I am not a cat person. I'm not much of a dog person either. I'm allergic. A dog comes and licks me, and if I touch my face 
Or if that dog licks me underneath this side of my arm, I start to break out in hives. And so if, if I ever come to your home and, and there's a dog and you see me sheepishly get behind my wife, uh, it's not that I'm afraid of dogs. I just don't want to take Benadryl, all right? I don't want an EpiPen. And, and so, but my daughters have cats. And if they lick me, it, the same thing happens. But, you know, cats are pretty independent and they like to stay away from you. So I'm a little okay with that. But you know what? These cats, they always want to do their own thing. They, they, they stand or sit at the top of the stairs, one of them at the top of the stairs, one of them at the bottom of the stairs, one of them by the front door, like sentinels, like they're guarding our house against strangers. And, and they would just run if a stranger came. And, and they always do what they, they want, but you know what? My daughters have conditioned every one of our cats uh, to be able to sit and to beg and to lay down the worst of them, the little one, his name is Wallace, or Wally, or Walter, I don't know what his name is, Wilhelmina. <laughs> but he's, he's like Belzebub incarnate in a cat. I mean, he climbs all over the furniture and like just scratches things just on purpose, just to annoy you. And when you go to get him, he'll run off and hide somewhere and you can't find him. And, and then he'll come and he'll climb up on you and he'll scratch your legs just to see what you'll do. And I want to say, come out from hence, unclean thing. You know what I mean? But even, even Wallace... Wallace, uh, Ryan, can, my youngest, can get to, to sit down and beg. She'll have a treat in her hand. Okay, sit down nicely, Walter. Walter will sit down. He'll put his paws like he's praying, you know, together. And okay, beg for the treat. And he'll get on his legs and he'll beg for the little treat. And okay, lay down, Walter. And Walter will lay down. He'll do everything that she asks. Why? Because he knows he's going to get a stupid little cat treat. And you know what? We're conditioned to do the same thing. If we do our little thing, if we check our spiritual boxes, if we do the things that please Jesus, only then we will experience his grace and his mercy. But we should all understand God's desire for sure is not that we sin, but we should also understand that Jesus finds joy even when we do when we partake of his mercy and his grace. If I had an infant child that was choking, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that that child stops choking. I remember going to dad school or whatever, going to the classes that you have before you have a baby entering into your, into your house, and they taught us what to do. You, you'd get the baby, and you lay the baby, the legs this way, and uh, the baby facing down this way, and you press on the back this way, and, and then you try to clear the airway. But I'm going to do everything I can. If I have a child that's choking, I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to have my wife on the phone with 911. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go across the street and find the, the paramedic down the street. I'm going to do everything I can to save that child. Why? Because that's my child. And here's what we need to understand. Jesus wants to do the same for us. He wants to do the same for us. Now, Christ is our head. As Christians, we are his body. 
the church, the head, wants to make sure all the body parts are functioning, all the body parts are well, all the body parts are healthy. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians that he nourisheth and cherisheth the church. And why? Because we are his body. The church is his body. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And every believer makes up a part of Christ's body. So what do we do when our body is injured? We go to the doctor. We, we take medicine. We wrap that injured part of our body. We care for it. We rehabilitate it. Why? Because it's our body. And here's what we need to understand. Jesus wants to do the same for us. In fact, he gets great joy when we do. Now, I understand salvation is a one-time event. Salvation, once it happens, you become a part of God's family. The Bible says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And as believers, we are forever God's children. We get to draw from God's unlimited grace and mercy because of what Jesus did for us. In fact, as we look at Hebrews chapter 4, because of what Jesus did for us, this is how we can come to God, not with our hat in hand, not groveling on our knees, not beating our backs with some type of stick and penance. But notice how the Bible says we can come in verse 16 of chapter 4. We can come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Now, it brought Jesus joy to stand in our place for our sins so that we could understand the limitlessness of his grace and his mercy when we needed it in salvation and when we need it today in our sanctification. Now, here's what happens. When we do something wrong, we create alienation. If I uh, say something unkind to my wife, I create a potential alienation. I create an alienation between me and her because of what I've said to her. I create feelings in her mind. I create feelings in her heart. I create uh, 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 thoughts that may uh, uh, harken back to another time when I've, I've done the same thing. Why? Because that's how we are as human beings. And, and for me, on my side of it, I'm thinking, you know what? I don't want to be around her. I don't want to go to her. I don't want to spend any time with her because I've done something to injure her and she doesn't want any part of me. And we do the same thing with God. We think that because we've sinned, we've created alienation. We've created a, a situation where God no longer wants us. He doesn't want to spend time with us. He doesn't accept us. He doesn't love us. He can't forgive us. After all, we've done the same thing over and over and over again. But what we need to understand is unlike our human relationships where alienation not resolved, God has already resolved it in Jesus Christ. Now, notice what the Bible goes on to say. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. In other words, 
Hold on to what God has given you. Revel in the fact that you're saved and that our eternal high priest has passed from the heavens to earth to give you a bit of heaven and he's paid the sacrifice of himself as the once for all sacrifice and hold on to what you got. Revel in it. Be glad in it. And then it goes on to say this. Why? Because we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. In other words, Jesus understands. He understands. He understands your struggle. He understands your frailness. He understands your inconsistency. Now, his desire, of course, is not that we sin, but he wants us to be reminded of what we have and that we can continually draw hope from his mercy and grace and find help in our time of need. Now, I want you to understand this also. The more we show mercy to others, the more we understand God's mercy. Listen to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain, they shall comprehend, they shall understand mercy. Now, when we respond without punishment or recompense to those who seemingly deserve it, we understand to a greater degree what God has done for us. And what Jesus has done for us as our great high priest. Now, one of the reasons we have trouble understanding who Jesus is, is because what we've been conditioned to think about Jesus from others. Now, others, even Christians, give us the idea that we somehow have to measure up before we're accepted. We think if we go to church and read our Bibles and check off the box of prayer, uh, then we should be fulfilled and we should be whole and we should be without struggles in life and towards sin. But as we continue to struggle, we feel like a failure. And that further creates alienation, which gets us to believe that God doesn't want anything to do with us. And it gives this idea that God is repulsed by us. But what we need to focus on is we need to redive into the mercy of Jesus. And he isn't pushing back. He isn't repelled from us. He gets great joy from us, even in our failings, in all of our struggles, in all of our problems, coming to him boldly for grace to help in our time of need brings him immense joy. So in conclusion... Let me ask you this. Are you drinking continually from the well of Jesus' grace and mercy? I'll be honest with you. When I realized in my Christian life that there was truly nothing I could do that could ever cause God to love me anymore, and nothing I could do that could ever cause God to love me any less. It changed my life. It changed my ministry. 
when I've understood that Jesus delights in showing me mercy and he'd much rather show me mercy than judgment any day of the week and that I can drink continually of his grace and mercy and when I do, it brings him joy. It literally changed my life. And when I understood this, the more I showed the mercy of Jesus and God to others, the more I then can comprehend his mercy towards me and the more I resemble him to the world. So I say to you Christians this morning, don't be judgy. Don't be nitpicky. Don't act like you are some superior case of stellar Christianity to whom nobody else can measure up to. Be like Jesus. Extend mercy to others because mercy has been extended to you. And I say to those that are struggling this morning, don't struggle. We used to sing a song that went something like this. What a friend we have in Jesus. All my sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer.